I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, Being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. Y'all, I'm so damn excited that Texas Isaiah is hosting this week's episode particularly because we don't talk enough about trans masculinity. We don't celebrate enough. We don't lift up enough trans men. And I think we have so many opportunities ahead of us to do so, to center the narratives, the lived experiences, the fears, the dreams of trans men. And this is a first step, at least, in terms of being seen and doing that work. I feel like it was extremely important for me to be a part of this conversation because I have so many of these conversations, but they're mostly in private. And that is for many different reasons. One, I feel like it's really important for me to like sit with myself and have a clear understanding of how I'm approaching not only my own lived experience, but other people's lived experiences as well. But I also feel like there's still a little bit of fear of of pushback around the nuances of masculinity. Because, you know, I think a lot of people do feel, and rightfully so, right, that masculinity is inherently harmful. But we know that to not be true. And there are, are people who are here, living, breathing, working in the name of preserving other layers of what masculinity can be. And so this was a way for me to sort of step up in a way that feels very authentic to me. And I have a clear understanding that I not only have so much to learn, but I also have so much more life to live. And as I'm doing so, I will learn more and I will be able to approach these conversations as best as I can. But I think it was really important for me to actually just challenge myself and be honest publicly about how I feel about the erasure of transmasculine individuals and their work. I'm Wazi Murray. My pronouns are he, him, they, them, or just Wazi is fine. So I'm originally from Highsville, Maryland, and most people don't know what Highsville is when I say that. So just for, for context, Highsville is a town that's, it's in PG County, Maryland, but it's it's literally five minutes outside of Northeast D.C. Born and raised there. My people are Black, Southern. My dad is a Black man from the South, also a military man. He, you know, was in the military just like trying to have opportunity and security uh, my mom is white, working class. She's been working class and poor for my whole life. And yeah, they were, my parents were never together. So I was always growing up in multiple households uh, because of that. And that has shaped me a lot because I actually grew up around just, yeah, people of all different races and class backgrounds too, between all those households my whole life. And so, um, 
My mom's also a survivor. And um, yeah, I, outside of my parents, my folks are like black, trans, queer folks, sex workers, artists, musicians, all of those groups of people are, are people that have shaped me deeply, healers and spiritual guides. And um, of course, I got to shout out ancestors because I think that, you know, ancestors have played such a huge part in my life um, and my purpose and have shaped a great part of who I am today. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, first off, Texas Isaiah, thank you for having me, Donnell Moore, the entire Being Seen team. My name is Marquise Fosson from the House of Balenciaga. I am a trans activist who also happens to be a creative. I'm an actor, currently EPing in this moment in time, but just trying to be all of the things that I can be fully. Mm -hmm. And we appreciate it. Thank you. So we're just going to get right into it. So you've spoken before about having been a performer in different ways for much of your life, including the ballroom scene, TV shows, and classes. What exists for you inside performance? In what ways does it allow you and others to explore identity and gender expression? And how does that exploration influence your own experience in the world? Mm. Oh, wow. I think inside of all of these things, performance particularly, there's a space in which I feel like I can explore all of myself, my emotions, my vulnerabilities, my, my fears in a way that I believe that as a masculine presenting person in the world, I don't always feel like I have the opportunity to have access to. And I think that through performance via ballroom as well as as an actor, I think that what has happened is a lot of that vulnerability has rolled into myself, right? Like mm -hmm. literally is allowing me to be as expressive and open and as honest, I think, as possible. But when I think about what it means to be a Black masculine presenting person, somebody who's Black and trans mask, I often think about what it means to be a Black man and, and the ways in which the people expect blackness to show up the way they expect black men to show up particularly you know which is either as a protector or a provider or aggressive interestingly enough or competitive right but not necessarily loving or sad you know i think a lot of people automatically go to men i would have to say so many of those lessons and those experiences aesthetically, right, came from Black women who were either queer or straight, but they presented themselves in a particular way that, you know, I guess other people would coin them as masculine, right, because of the way that they dressed. But so much of that had to do with the culture and the aesthetic during that time because of the music that was coming out, right? And so, you know, I think that, you know, for me to be out and about in the world and in my neighborhood and being in close proximity to older Black women who were so certain of themselves, didn't care what anybody had to say about them, didn't care about how people, you know, made assumptions about them was very, it was a, such a huge 
experience for me to witness because I think that that allowed me to understand that like, okay, I have autonomy to name myself. What currently shapes your perspectives and relationship to masculinity? What does it mean to think beyond the binary and gender for you? Yeah, so currently what shapes my perspective and my relationship to masculinity would be my own like divine sense of wholeness and purpose. It's really connected to my my own spiritual depth and connection to my body. I think like in the past, a lot of the, the ways that I was connected to my masculinity or my relationship was informed by all these outside forces, you know? So it was like, whether it was messages that we see in the media about what it means to be a man or, you know, me trying to like be one of the boys hanging out with the guys from school or watching like men in my life, like my dad, my brother. Even when I came into my queerness, and found like community with masculine of center folks and um, boys, B-O-I-S. I think like so much of my, how I was shaped growing up inside of my masculinity was from all of these particularly outside forces that were outside of me, you know? And those were definitely like positive forces. But then I think over time, like I realized that I, I really needed to to go internal, go inside of myself to figure out what feels true to me about my own masculinity. A lot of the things, we talk about this all the time, but a lot of the things that I learned from those outside forces were negative things, toxic things, you know, and things that at the end of the day were like hurting me on the inside. And I know that, you know, when I was not my best self, I was also hurting other people, you know. And so I think when I when I began, well, I don't think I know, when I began to do more of my own like healing work and started that journey, that that just revealed so much more to me about like what actually feels true about masculinity and how it lives inside of me, you know. I think community can offer so many different chapters of possibilities and sometimes not, right? Like sometimes we're sort of faced with definitions or presences that, you know, may not sit well with us. And so we have, you know, a moment to say no to those things, you know, if that makes sense. But I think overall, like community just offers a lot of possibility. Community can offer a lot of support and a lot of love, a lot of affirmation. And I don't think that we are able to self-define and really live without the people in our lives. So that I would say is probably like one of the first moments and the the need to sort of like be loud vocally, I would say actually really did come through through ballroom and ballroom culture, which is interesting because it's such a performative place that doesn't really have a lot of dialogue. But I often felt even in that community at times, the sense of silence and wanting to have access to voice and kind of speaking to that came to me early, I think, just through documentary form and kind of speaking to my own experience, being willing to do so based on everything else that I had encountered up until that point. I mean, I I joined Ballroom at, at 14 in 1995, but prior to to that moment, my father had been killed 
I'm 88, he was 29, I was seven at that point in my life. You know, the, the idea in that moment was if you're black, you're going to end up dead or in jail by the time you're 30. So that was, it was very telling to me, I think at that age, you, you know, innocence is kind of gone and, and you're learning about, or at least for me, I'm learning about blackness in a really specific way at a really specific time. And then I have an aunt who by the time I'm 12, 13 in the early 90s dies due to AIDS-related complications. And so the need to be loud and to be seen and to be vocal honestly came also out of feeling like I was going to be dealt a very short hand, you know, just to be honest. And given, given what I believe, what I believed at that time of my life about what it meant to be black, what it meant to be queer, I just, I wasn't interested in waiting to speak my own truth, to, to, to take up space because I didn't know when I would not have any more of that left, when, when I wouldn't have those opportunities and I'd, I didn't want to shoulda, woulda, coulda moment. What Ballroom was able to provide me with as a very young person, first, was sense of community, sense of seeing oneself and knowing that there are so many outsiders who, like me, exist. I appreciate all of what it means to be both Black and both queer because I've been a part of Ballroom and this community and its culture. And in terms of what I believe my impact potentially has been on the next generation of Black trans men or just trans men in general that come through Ballroom's, ballroom's doors or anyone else, I think for that matter, that impact has probably been what looks like something that's on the floor but also off you know the idea that you can transcend out of that space that you can use every bit of information art creativity all of those things you can take what you've learned and cultivate it out of that space and apply it to practically anything in your life i think when i was you know coming into myself I think society and even community was telling me that I had to depart from who I was. And it never sat well with me to do that. And I would try and it just didn't feel innate to me. And the last couple of years I've been doing a lot of research about inner child work. It's also been such a huge aspect of my spiritual practice as well. And I think it's really important to declare your lived experience, your life. You know, like me claiming myself as a young person me being a man who was brought into the world as a Black girl does not take away from my experience. It doesn't diminish who I am as a person. I don't feel less because of that. Yeah, like even in our own community, I feel like sometimes it's like we like our younger selves are not honored in the same way or something like, um, you know, people will just see kind of the physical body and it's like, 
that's what they see. But there's so much more that came before, you know, these journeys of us being in, in these particular bodies, right? Like we definitely have these experiences, or I'll speak from the eye. Like I have this experience of living as a young black girl. I know what that felt like for for many years of my life. And I know that I have more privileges now as like a black trans man in the world in certain different contexts, you know, and but it's like it's so complex because, yeah, I find myself I'm working on distancing myself less and, and, and trying to like take up more space, you know, in a way that that feels like with integrity. But I've definitely f- felt myself distancing forgetting my own life experience um, because of the ways that other people kind of like were seeing and perceiving me in this in this new body quote unquote yeah I, I think that so much of my my healing work has been doing this inner child work and actually going back to acknowledge like little wazi was a was somebody it, like he was here you know you know we had life experiences that just in a different kind of a lifetime, you know, and, and I have to honor that and, and remember that because my, my experience is, my life experience, the way that I walk through the world is not the same as how cis men walk through the world, you know. We, we have some overlap and similarities, but we have a lot of differences too. And so I've definitely had to come back to that to, to do more of my own healing work. Yeah, I mean, possibility models. I mean, that's, you know, someone who reveals one possible way of being a human in this world to you. And I think possibility models are really great. I want people to understand that possibility models don't only exist in media. They aren't only celebrities. Possibility models can be, you know, your bus driver, (laughs) the garbage person. You know, people who work in the food industry, you know, like it, it can be anyone and they serve us well, you know, or in the best way for us to figure out our course in the world. Hi, everybody. I'm Aya Simone. She, her pronouns, Black trans woman, Detroit harpist, singer, songwriter, filmmaker, Just kind of all around, bad bitch artist. (laughs) What possibilities do you think are presented by these kinds of love and platonic relationships, specifically between Black trans women and Black trans masculine individuals? Mm, I'll speak from like what I feel like, what our relationship made me feel, because I Mm -hmm. feel like that's the best, best way to describe or articulate kind of like the possibilities. Mm -hmm. I think one possibilities for having like, honestly, at the very base of it, it made me, it helped me see or rather notice the nuances that comes when you have, when you have relationships, honestly, like we kind of think of relationships, romantic, platonic, like aromantic, queer, platonic, like we have these kind of categories, but it wasn't, I, I think what was so dope is like how I felt like I could have like intimacy with a masculine partner, like with a masculine partner that didn't feel extractive. Mm-hmm. 
I felt our connection was really dope because of just like one it was like I really got a chance to get to know you in in like those two weeks like once we met in person but also I think it was like a certain kind of intimacy that like of like a space of care that I felt like we reciprocated of like you know active listening of I felt like I could talk from my heart space with you not to say that I never knew that it was possible, but more so, it felt like a more embodied knowing, getting to know you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is possible because I'm doing this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think about love a lot because we all need to be loved. We've also been taught harmful ways to love, you know, so much of the ideas of love sort of are immersed in possession, you know, all of this toxicity. But when we call for love, we have to also make room to accept that love and know that we're deserving of it. So I feel like there's work on so many fronts on like what it means to not only ask for possibility models, but how do we hold possibility models as well? If we're talking about liberation dreams, everyone has to be a part of that. And it was important for me to name a desire to build communities with cis men, especially cis, gay, and queer men. There is a love there. And I think it's important for me to name how much I want to be considered, not only in community, in conversation, but also in legacy. You know, I think that there's a lot of shared similarities. I think there's also a lot of differences. I think they can all be held, but I want to be considered. And that's why it was very important for me to to mention or even speak with individuals about our relationships with cis men, our desires to to build community with them, to love them, to have those things be reciprocated for us to work towards this liberation dream because it can't be done without them, right? It doesn't work that way, (laughs) in my eyes, at least. I'm going to get back on track after this question, but I think to follow up with that and something we've talked about, what has it been like for you to create more foundational relationships with cis men like how has that experience been and also is there a deep desire to to continue that work because i want to be very frank that there is a lot of fear and a lot of violence that can happen towards transmasculine people within their relationships with cis men and sometimes even if those desires to connect with cis men even if those cis men are queer and or gay, there's sometimes a a particular resistance to forming those relationships with us because of it's rooted in transphobia, it's rooted in patriarchy, 
a lot of the things that we've been taught about gender. And it's also sometimes rooted in desirability. (laughs) So I, I want you to kind of talk about like what that kind of relationship building has been like for you, especially as someone who is visible, right? Because of the work that you do, like you're visible in some sort of aspect, right? So it's like people know that you're trans. If they do not know, they can research the things that you do and they know that you're trans. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love that question. Um, it's been so like hit or miss <laughs> um, with in terms of my connections with cis men. You know, like I, it's really interesting, like especially when I was younger, like my relationships with cis men, it was like, well, I guess before I was identifying as trans, the way that that relationship would look like is like I was welcomed in relationship with them and I was especially welcomed if I was like participating in the behavior of like, you know, boys behavior, um, you know, which meant like mostly a lot of toxic behavior, you know. And so I was definitely I was like more welcomed, more accepted, so to speak, if I was you know, participating in that way. And as I've grown older and the more that I've like, I'm continuing to work on my own healing, I'm like, you know, challenging myself and and I've done more of challenging of, of cis men in my life. And so, yeah, it's definitely become more hit or miss the, the more that I just like am in those relationships and I'm like, you know, out front challenging them on behaviors or certain beliefs or ideologies or whatever. I've had some relationships that it's like, it feels like I have to do the like chasing of them. Like I have to like chase them down to get a conversation or to set up a something, you know? And sometimes it feels like they're they're not interested in actually building something with me, you know? Or if they do, then it's like strictly transactional. You know, like, oh, let me let me bring you to talk on this thing real quick. But then there's no like in between trying to build a relationship at all. And yeah, that's hard. Um, It's been hard and it's been like. But then there's other cis, there's other cis men who who have been very intentional, you know, like that I've been able to build connections with. And those are the ones that I've like maintained connections with that I'm like, OK, I feel like, you know, we can be in each other's lives in a certain capacity. But a lot of cis men I've had to have a lot of like boundaries with because of the ways that it hasn't felt good in the ways that we interact or it feels like I'm doing all of the work or emotional labor. Sometimes even if they are truly interested in a relationship with me, I'm doing a lot of emotional labor and having to like educate them and hold them in all of these different ways that doesn't feel good. Yeah. And I know we talk about this often and we're also, you know, trying to develop language and also our placement within these things. I do have one question that actually isn't on here, but I feel like it's something that we spoke about before. Would you want to see more platonic relationships associated with Black trans women in media? Absolutely. And would, and specifically with other Black trans people? Like, is that something that you desire to see more of? I think absolutely. You know, I think we, it's heavily understood. I feel like the amount of focus is on like these romantic ones. And I think friendship, friendship is a foundational 
aspect of any relationship, even familial relationships, you know, we're all friends in capacity, (laughs) in different capacities. And so like, absolutely, I would love to see more Black trans women or stories with Black trans people being friends and navigating like platonic intimacy that's not necessarily sexual. Like, we all know that sex sells and like, and whatnot, but also we can tell stories of intimacy that don't have to go there. Friendship is just super foundational to any relationship, whether it's sexual or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that there is a utility to developing storylines around romantic relationships, right? But also, I don't think that we're taught to be friends. We're not taught to be good friends. And specifically, I think, you know, I don't want to make this too broad, but I think when I think of the ways that cis men have been raised, they they have never been raised to be good friends. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, child. <laughs> the way, it's the way I can count on my hand how many cis, like cis het man friends I have in my life. Yeah, you know, I I think that there is an assumption that because one may be oppressed, that means that an individual has a knowing of of how to walk through the world and, and uplift and treat people well. And that's not necessarily true. You know, I think so much of hurt and harm comes from people who are hurting and who are being harmed, who were harmed who have been harmed. And we need to stop pedestaling people. I think so much of that has to do with pedestaling individuals, assuming that getting to know someone doesn't need to happen because we're Black and we're queer and we're trans, so that means that we're going to feel safe with each other. That's not true. I think that prior to this current iteration of our movements, Black Liberation Movement, for so long, trans folks were like explicitly not welcome, explicitly not, and it wasn't safe for trans for trans folks and most queer folks to be visible inside of movements either. Um, that's why we don't see so many of them are literally written out of history. We don't we don't know the history of of our movements. But that's that's slowly changing, you know. Um, and so, you know, that's one aspect is like the the ways that trans folks historically have been treated in movement is like we've literally they've tried to erase us, you know, and they tried to keep us out um, for so long because of transphobia, all of the things. Now, in this iteration of the movement, you know, we have a much more a movement that has a lot of, um, you know, language around wanting to be more inclusive. We have movements that are led by Black queer folks, you know, and it visibly who are able to be visible. And so I think that that has shifted in terms of like, okay, now, you know, it's less of like explicit transphobia that we're seeing. Although I want to be clear, there's definitely still explicit transphobia that happens in the movement. But I think it's a lot it's a lot less than, you know, what the generations before us have seen, I think, in terms of in the movement specifically, explicit transphobia. And I think that the ways that 
It looks now in terms of trans folks being removed or left out of the movement. It's like very, it's much more implicit. And so I think it's like, when I say that, I mean, it's like, I think the movement has a lot of language to say like they want to be inclusive and welcome trans folks, but not actually the practice and the embodiment of that. And so I think that the way that that shows is like most folks don't actually know how to be in right relationship with trans folks because a lot of them didn't have relationships with us at all, you know, maybe even before the movement, maybe still, even in being in the movement, they don't have actual relationships with us. And so because of all of that, plus because of internalized transphobia, I think that, you know, that means that trans folks get left out, often get left out of decision-making processes. We might get invited to a thing or invited to the table, but we're not put into leadership positions. Our leadership is not trusted. Or we might, um, certain folks might get in, invited, and um, but it's really like we're tokenized, you know? And so those are some of the ways that like trans folks are in terms of how our, this current iteration of the movement is functioning. Those are, have been a lot of the tensions over the years, like, you know, trans folks not being treated with intention or with a lot of care. In terms of HIV, that's, you know, I think that the lack of inclusion will cost a life. I mean, I think erasure does cost lives. But when you're erasing an entire demographic of individuals who are affected systemically, you're not serving community. You have also talked about the ways in which a lack of representation in other areas is impacting transmasculine people, in particular, the healthcare system and with regards to HIV. Can you speak a little bit about the ways you felt unseen and conversely how you think that could, should be changed and the impact it would have? Thank you definitely for this question. It's a very important one. I think the ways that, for me personally, I have felt unseen, I think, in the, the field of HIV. So a little bit of backstory or history. So I come from the nonprofit world, had worked in social services, um, specifically as a sexual health coordinator. And I worked in HIV testing and pre- and post-counseling and group facilitations and intervention and the whole nine. And one of the things that I noticed, which was roughly about a decade ago, which was 2010, was the very lack of language that the HIV world had in connection to transness or like trans people, in particular trans men. And so thinking about stories like Lou Sullivan's, who is the first, or at that time, would have been the first publicly known trans person, trans man, I should say, to be HIV positive. This is in 1986, right? When we learned this information, it is in 1986. So this is five years after the first reported case of HIV in this country. Now, fast forward, 2019, the CDC releases a case study that includes trans men. So for years prior to that point, they had collected transgender populations, not thinking about folks who were assigned female at birth, AFAB folks and trans men. And so by the time we see this case study, this is 33 years, that trans men are not included in this conversation. That's new infection rates consistently, you know, over and over again. 
And when I finally did get to see the case study, so that it, for people who don't know, right, case studies around HIV take five years to collect. So this is from 2009 to 2014 and another five years before they release. So that's a whole decade of this information just kind of sitting before it's released to the public. And you see the chart, 58% of those who had been newly diagnosed are black. The larger population are people of color. If I'm correct, 16% or 15% are white. That's a huge population of people of color who you know, have been exposed to HIV and have little to no information and education on what that means. So in terms of what I've chosen to do in that fight or to be a part of that conversation, I recently joined the board of directors for GMHC as a way to be actively involved in that fight and in the conversation and figure out creative ways to include trans men in the conversation because we are equally at risk for HIV as everyone is. If you are a sexually active, period, it doesn't matter who you are, we're all at risk. If it's one person's issue, it's all of our issues. And I believe, you know, if there's any gaps in community outreach and information and education and prevention and treatment adherence, well, then there's still going to be increases of of risk. There is an assumption that if you are a transmasculine person, then that automatically means that you're a man and that automatically means that you have privilege. So you don't need care. You don't need support. You don't need material needs because you're going to get that. And we know that to not be true at all. And I think that that causes a lot of people to feel like they have to be isolated and there's a lot of assumptions um, made about transmasculine people. And when individuals maybe try to speak, they're silenced. And we all know that if you don't have community support and you feel silenced, then that automatically you know, means that you're going to feel a need to self-isolate. And that could be extremely dangerous for anyone, but particularly for trans people. I think my creative intent with the video, but starting from the, the song was from the heart to remind myself like, you know, I don't exist in a vacuum and I'm not going to survive without other people. And although you, you feel hurt now and although you're in grief now, don't give up hope and continue to reach out to people and allow people to love you and allow people to pour into you and give give of themselves and to remember that you know we you know you and your people we all we got like you know for instance like creating that frostbite was that my container my my universe for like housing you know this was this was these are the ways that I've I've been made to feel alone, you know, left out in the cold, abandoned, but also like my my homegirls, super cool, wicked, and Keswa, like they were there, who are also two fab, amazing, also Detroit musicians. They were there to support, but I think the ultimate theme was it was just like I was kind of lost in like this kind of like this world of sadness, but also with people. But the characters that Keswa and Super Cool Wicked play, 
they weren't always in every frame. They were kind of fade in and out. And so like, it was like, is this real? Is this not? And so a lot of those themes are about like the space between, for instance, knowing if someone loves you or not. I feel like we're all like on some level still insecure about how our place in people's lives. Even when we feel secure, it's always a moment like, do they really, do they still care about me? Do they love me? Like, even if you know you love them, but it's like, do they love me like, you know, do they love me like this, how they loved me before? Or do they love me in a different way? It's always some kind of precarity between how we feel about others, how we feel about ourselves, and how we think others feel about us. And I think Frostbite kind of just honed in on that. Like, that's, it's that space in between, the space that we can't always make concrete, I think. You know, it, it is a, a, a sense of, no, look at me, gaze into my eyes. This is the world. This is the world of isolation. This is the world of camaraderie. This is the world of community. This is the world of, like, you know, of, of ties. I like how the easiest question is the most difficult. <laughs> yeah. I think my final reflection is... Hmm. I don't know. I, I just feel very grateful to be here, alive, breathing, and to offer space to individuals who are doing many different beautiful things in the world. And I want to be able to fully love, support, and care for those individuals and for those communities, even when the outside world is telling us that we don't deserve those things. And I think I, I feel that there's a power that I feel in knowing that when you live in a world that tells you that you shouldn't exist and that you don't deserve the things you should have, that you continue to excel. And I'm not talking about gaining opportunities or work, but you, you continue to excel as a human being, as a person. I want to be, be heard. I want to be witnessed. I want my flowers when I'm here and not when I'm gone. I want to be appreciated. I want to be supported. And so much of that is because I know that I can reciprocate those things. <laughs> and because of that, I want those things back for me, you know, because I think being loved is and being heard is such a, a beautiful and frightening thing. <laughs> and I learn so much when I'm witnessed. I love to see how people think of me and the work that I do their responses to what I have to say. I hope that what I have to say builds a lot of curiosity within people. I hope that they learn a lot. And I hope that they feel the desire to actually go out and form communities with people that they weren't aware of. What are the possibilities I need to know exist? I think the possibility of accountability and shared growth and I know that they exist. I would love to see more of it. More mindfulness. More thinking beyond ourselves. 
right? I love to use that phrase, thinking beyond ourselves, because my lived experience isn't the only one to consider. And that has brought me so much in my life to understand that there are so many people in the world living so many different truths. And yeah, the possibility of, of thinking beyond self is, is I want to see more of that. Being Seen is produced by Harley and & Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.